everybody, it's John Pollock here, and welcome to our UFC 228 post show here at postwrestling.com. Thank you for tuning in on this Sunday afternoon or wherever, whatever time you are listening to our review of UFC. It's just me solo this month. Uh, we will be reconnecting with, hopefully, uh, Phil and Ziggy next month after UFC 229. Uh, it was a very busy weekend going on, so just difficult to get everyone's schedules in alignment. So uh, that was more on my end. So did get a chance to watch the entire pay-per-view. This was a really good show from the UFC. Not one of their shows that I think had a whole ton of interest going into it with the two championship fights. I think there was uh, most interest reserved for the main event involving Tyron Woodley and Darren Till, seeing what level Darren Till was going to be at here against the top welterweight in the world. And I think a lot of reservation on people's part going in. Will we even get to see that main event given Darren Till's uh, issue with his uh, making weight for the Stephen Thompson fight this past May? Would this be a title fight we would even get to see on Saturday night. And while two championship fights were promoted, only one was delivered, but it was Darren Till who had uh, no fault at at his feet because he came in weighing 169 pounds. That fight went through, but it was the women's flyweight bout between uh, challenger Valentina Shevchenko and Nico Montano that was scrapped on Friday morning after Nico Montano was hospitalized, uh, citing uh, potential kidney issues and therefore unable to continue her weight cut, was pulled from the fight, it was canceled, and then UFC President Dana White, in speaking with the media, including Aaron Bronstetter at TSN, who I believe was the first one uh, to get this statement from Dana White, they were going to be vacating the flyweight championship, stripping Montano of the title before she has even one title defense, and that was probably part and parcel why they made this quick decision, and it's one of those rulings that, you know, someone brought this up to me, the fact that we are going to see this title uh, taken away from Nico Montano because of her body shutting down and unable to continue with her weight cut, and yet we are going ahead with a title fight in which the challenger just missed weight by a significant margin, and his his penalty was earning a title fight after that main event with Stephen Thompson. If you're looking for consistency, this is, this is not the promotion to be seeking that kind of consistency out of. This is who is valued and who is not, who is made an example of. And for Nico Montano, I, I found this a puzzling decision in some regard and in others completely predictable that they would make such a knee-jerk reaction to go the extra step and strip Nico Montano of the title. And then when I let it sit for a while and thought a bit deeper about it, what kind of a message is sent from this that the next time, forget champion, even if it is somebody that is just in a important fight, in a undercard fight, and their body is hitting the limit. And there have been no shortage of those athletes who have been stopped and protected from themselves because of the dangers that they are pushing their bodies to when it comes to cutting and making weight, that the next time this arises, this example is going to be in the back of their mind that I am going to push myself that much further, even if my team and a doctor is telling me otherwise, I'm going to push myself that far because look what happened to Nico Montano. I could be stripped of my title. I could be let go from this company if I do not 
make weight. There was a clear message sent here, and it only applies to a certain percentage of the UFC fighters. And it did not apply to it, it hasn't applied. This is a this is not a a decision that has any kind of precedent behind it of a champion that uh, for medical reasons, could not make weight and therefore is stripped of the title. I understand the underlying current that this looked like a mismatch on paper. The UFC created this problem. They designed an entire season of the Ultimate Fighter to crown the first women's flyweight champion. And everybody knew at the time that when this division fills itself out, the top flyweights in this division are not going on this reality series. Valentina Shevchenko was not going to go for six weeks of the Ultimate Fighter. Joanna Jandracek was not going to come up and wait for a chance to be on the Ultimate Fighter. And this was what you did by creating a uh, an Ultimate Fighter season where the title was awarded to the winner. And you had someone, at the, with all due respect, and Nico Montano has received all this criticism, and yet all that you have seen in her in a UFC octagon is have her arm raised. She has yet to fail. I was curious to see how she would come out. Sometimes in these fights where it is so lopsided on paper, you get some of the best performances out of that underdog who knows more than anyone else how big of a challenge that they are facing and knowing that every single day of preparation that sometimes you get the best performances out of a fighter. And for that reason alone, I wanted to see if Nico Montano was going to show everybody and surprise people with what she could do with Valentina Shevchenko. Was I picking Nico Montagna? No, but I had a curiosity in the fight, and I certainly think that this is not even beneficial to Valentina Shevchenko, who, if Dana White is to believe, will be fighting an unknown flyweight at a later date to determine the new flyweight champion, and is going to have now this weird cloud over top of her. Not that beating Nico Montagna is necessary, the, the validation she needs, but it's going to be there. What if we have Nico Montano, who in her statement that she released uh, through her camp, believes she'll be okay in relatively quick fashion, that her and Valentina Shevchenko could be ready to return at around the same time, and the challenger as of three days ago will now be fighting for the title, and the champion as of a couple of days ago could be in a throwaway 125-pound fight. It's a strange ruling, one that I... I question if it will even be played out that uh, Dana White stating someone will be stripped of the title. uh, We hold our breath and see if that is how it actualizes itself. It's a very strange division that they have launched and create their own problems. And that to me has been one of my consistent issues with the planning of the UFC is that I, I equate it to somebody that has been playing at the blackjack tables all night long. And they are looking at how much they are down and what they have to do to pull out of this hole and break even for the night. And the parallel is the UFC is looking at the next pay-per-view and getting a championship fight on that next pay-per-view by any means necessary. And that is is their long-term game. It is the next pay-per-view. And you are trying to convince this person of long-term benefits of life insurance long-term benefits of investing your money so that it will reap benefits for you years down the road. That is not what they are thinking. When they launched this flyweight division, it was to facilitate a season of the ultimate fighter, to have a hook for the ultimate fighter. And here we are with a woman in Nico Montano, who 
Let's pull out our calendars. Missed nine months. In the grand scheme of things, nine months is hardly something that I think everybody should be up in arms over. That this woman who fought three times in the Ultimate Fighter House before going and uh, winning this championship uh, had nine months off after that process of making weight that many times inside the Ultimate Fighter House. I think that Nico Montano has gotten uh, a horrible end of this. If you were going to commit to crowning a UFC women's flyweight champion, then she should have all of the the accolades, the respect, and the the proper ability to fight healthy. That any fighter should have those kinds of rights. And now you have this strange decision that will be lingering for any fighter the next time they are staring, seeing triple, and about to pass out from, from their kidneys shutting down and pushing further because of the fear of what repercussions may be in store if they have to pull out of a fight and go to a hospital because their body is shutting down. That was the the final uh, couple of hours leading up to UFC 228. And the reason we only had one championship fight, 14,073 uh, showed up at the American Airlines Arena on Saturday, gate of $1.7 million as the UFC returning to Texas. We'll start back on the Fight Pass prelims. We had four with the uh, the rejigged card uh, coming our way. Started off with Jared Brooks taking on Roberto Sanchez, a pair of flyweights. Uh, this was probably the dullest fight on the card. It ended up going the distance. Uh, for Roberto Sanchez, very solid first round, outstriking Brooks by a margin of 40-2. to two. And Sanchez just, uh, you know, he was able to land several strong strikes uh, throughout this fight. Some some key ones all kind of concentrated in that first round. But in the second and into the third, it was Brooks who took over with his body control, took Sanchez down, and controlled him on top. Uh, this was when Sanchez pulled guard, and the announcers were very confused at this decision by Sanchez to pull guard and not really have much of an attack off of his back. And this played to Brooks' strength on top and continued into the second. Got very aggressive in the final 30 seconds, and I thought 29-28, Jared Brooks seemed to be the consensus. Jared Brooks got the decision, though it was a split. Someone did score two rounds for Sanchez. I don't know how you get a second round for Sanchez um, beyond the first round. Uh, 29-28, twice in the favor of Brooks, who had lost his last two fights, and uh, now 2-2 two and two inside of the UFC, only taking this fight on five days' notice. So Jared Brooks, uh, a good win here, improves to 14-2. and two. Irene Aldana took on... Uh, a very game, uh, Lutsi Pudulova. This ended up being the fight of the night, a dynamite three-round bout involving these two female bantamweights. Uh, just out of the gate, these two were just some great uh, technical striking throughout this entire fight. Aldana was landing early with uh, some power behind her right hand, while Pudulova had just some sensational jabs. These were some uh, this first round in particular, very, very close round. Uh, Putilova putting big, big kicks together. Aldana came back with a spinning back fist. Just a great opening round. Uh, into the second, Aldana cracked her with a right hand after they traded jabs. Putilova was just throwing so much, uh, but it appeared even in terms of what each woman was landing. Another very close round, uh, but Aldana was ahead in the significant strikes by a margin of 40 to 28. So after two rounds, I had it even going into the third with Putilova taking the first, Aldana the second. And I thought the third round was a uh, 
probably the easiest round to score. I gave this one to Aldana. She was attacking the left leg of Putalova, and it was starting to really wear on her. But Putalova, to her credit, just came, kept coming forward uh, despite the leg issues, started bleeding from the nose and working around her jab. But Aldana just seemed to have her timing down pat here. She was bobbing and weaving, getting out of any kind of danger from the strikes of Putalova and landed a knee from the clinch. Putalova keep moves for, keeps moving forward and it ends. The crowd is standing. This was a big, big win for both women. Uh, Irene Aldana wins by split decision, 29-28, 28-29, and 29-28. So after losses to Leslie Smith and Caitlin Chukagian, uh, we have Aldana on a two-fight win streak now over Talita Bernardo and now uh, Lutsi Putalova. And interestingly enough, she had never gone the distance until entering the UFC, now has gone uh, the full 15 minutes in all four of her UFC fights. She had been scheduled to fight Betch Kohea last month at UFC 227 in LA. That fight was canceled at the last minute, and then she was moved to this card. So she essentially had a training camp and then had to tack on four more weeks and prepare for a whole new opponent in Lutsi Putalova. But a great fight, and both women exiting with uh, the $50,000 fight of the night bonus. Jim Miller, he took on Alex White. Jim Miller was entering the UFC octagon for the 30th time, a record amongst UFC fighters, and this was the feel-good fight of the night. Miller landed with a straight left that rocked Alex White, stunned him. He goes down to the cage, and Miller was on top of him, grabbed the back, submitted him with a rear naked choke. This arena was going insane for Jim Miller. Just an unbelievable uh, spectacle at the American Airlines Center. This ended a four-fight losing streak for Jim Miller. You had to wonder that had this been five in a row, would this have been Jim Miller's final fight in the UFC? Uh, he wins a minute 29 of the first with the submission. And then afterwards, if this wasn't a great enough scene, he gives this tremendous speech about fighting underwater for two years, hypothetically, or I should say uh, figuratively, and finally feels like his head is above it uh, and training like a professional again. If you recall, he had had this nasty virus and was just working through fatigue and not feeling himself. And then he finds out he has Lyme disease. And he says the last two years has just been trying to kick this Lyme disease. He finally feels like it's out of his system and he can train like a professional again. And man, did he look great here. Alex White is, uh, he is no joke at 155 pounds. This was hardly a pushover fight. And Jim Miller passing with flying colors and a much-needed win for the 35-year-old. And then a similar theme in our Fight Pass uh, featured bout as Diego Sanchez, the man who won the first season of The Ultimate Fighter back in 2005, uh, comes into this fight with Craig White. It was uh, the pair of uh, Mr. Whites here taking on the, the UFC veterans in Jim Miller and Diego Sanchez. Wow, was this a performance that I don't know if anyone expected this in this fight. First of all, uh, Craig White was a minus 210 favorite going into this fight. If uh, if you had placed your money on underdogs on this card, you probably came away with a big smile on your face because there were a number of big underdogs that came through on this fight. Uh, in this card, Sanchez runs up to Craig White at the beginning of the fight and just takes him down and puts his head right into his arms for a guillotine, but lifted and slammed down White, and that began, began his dominance for this entire fight. 
He is on top in White's guard. He is continually passing, or at least attempting to pass, landing tons of shots on top. Eventually got the side control. Huge, huge round for Diego Sanchez. I thought it was a 10-8 round, even with the old rules in place uh, that Texas uh, has. Uh, in the second, White was able to crack him with a knee. Didn't even phase Sanchez, who just lifted, dumped White with a high crotch onto his back, and then wash, rinse, and repeat uh, from the first round. On top of him, landing strikes, hammer fists, uh, even sat on him. Uh, I thought another 10-8 round. This one was uh, closer because you do have the old rules, but I thought we had a pair of 10-8 rounds. Diego Sanchez was on his way cruising to victory, and then in the third, White uh, dropped him. Sanchez just recovers, takes him down, and back to the same top pressure again. Craig White had no answer for Diego Sanchez in this fight. I had it 30-25 for Diego Sanchez. No judge scored a 10-8 in this round, which was puzzling, to say the least. He had straight 30-27 scorecards. Diego's first win since November of 2016, that after losses to Ally Quinta and Matt Brown. And that was his 17th win in the UFC, 28th overall, so too shy of Jim Miller's total, which is really incredible when you consider Jim Miller entered the UFC three and a half years after Diego Sanchez did, and yet he is the all-time UFC leader in fights. Uh, The the fight pass prelims, some some great moments, the fight of the night in uh, Lutsi Putulova and Irene Aldana, and a great story with Diego Sanchez with Man, uh, I know John Anik was comparing the opening round to his best round since the Marcin Held fight. In terms of a performance from Diego Sanchez, I don't know how far you have to go back to uh, see a start-to-finish performance from Diego Sanchez at this level. Uh, it was, man, you're going back years and years for a three-round war Um You know, Martin Campman, I'm looking just at his record here. I mean, that was an absolutely hellacious fight, but that was hardly one-way traffic from Diego Sanchez, who walked away from that fight uh, like a zombie. Um, And then there's, you know, the uh, the Jake Ellenberger fight where he walked to the cage as though he was uh, trying to exercise a zombie. So a great, great fight from Diego Sanchez. We then move over to the televised uh, prelims. On FX, kicking off with Charles Bird, uh, ten and four middleweight, taking on Darren Stewart, who walked in with a record of eight and three with one no contest. First round was all Charles Bird. He landed with a combination, worked for a standing guillotine, and then some big elbows off the fence uh, during the break. So he took the first round, and it looks like Charles Bird uh, was going to be causing a lot of problems in the striking department. But then Stewart comes back and rocked him. The mouthpiece of Bird's flies out. Stewart lands a right elbow, Bird covers up, and then a follow-up right elbow drops Bird, and he's done. 217 of the second round, and it is Darren Stewart's second straight victory in the UFC after an 0-3 start in the UFC, uh, along with a one-no contest in there. So his first four fights, uh, nothing, nothing to write home about, but now he's strung together two wins, and... For Charles Bird, he had won twice on Dana White's Tuesday Night Contender Series last year, then beat John Phillips in May of this year. Uh, so that was the end of his four-fight win streak. Uh, good win here for Darren Stewart to kick off the televised prelims. Jeff Neal took on Frank Camacho at 170 pounds. This was going to be on Fight Pass, and then with the shuffling of the deck, these two ended up on television. Jeff Neal, uh, this 
kind of emphasized the the depth of the performances you saw on this particular card because on most nights, Jeff Neal would have been walking away with a $50,000 check. And on this night, unfortunately, uh, his was one performance that was maybe overlooked, uh, but just it, it spoke to the level of performances we saw on this show because Jeff Neal uh, certainly cemented his spot within the UFC's uh, welterweight ranks as a up-and-coming prospect. He was a minus 200 favorite uh, coming in and his key was his his precision with his left hands and the speed in which he used it. His He had this left high kick that there was no tell with this head kick. He was able to just take this out of his pocket like nothing uh, to stun Frank Camacho. Uh, Camacho just eating a lot of shots in the first round, and Neil was too quick for him, dropped Camacho with a right-left combination at the end, and nearly finished the fight uh, as time expired in the first. In the second, Neil is just ferocious. He is going up against the fence, attacking Camacho, landing lots of shots, puts in a flying knee, and then he stands back into the middle, basically draws a line in the sand and dares Camacho to cross it. Camacho is ready to trade, and boom, head kick by Jeff Neal, and Frank Camacho is sent into orbit. He is out. This was one of the most violent knockouts of the year. Comes at 123 of the second. Uh, Neil has now won four straight uh, after winning on Dana White's Tuesday Night Contender Series in July of last year. Then he submitted Brian Kamotzi in February this year. Uh, Camacho falls to one in three inside of the UFC. Uh, this is a knockout to seek out if you didn't see it. Just so uh, vicious. Um, yeah, one to uh, earmark for your year-end awards because this will be in most people's top five knockouts of the year, in my opinion. Big, big win for Jeff Neal. And, you know, Frank Camacho is someone that's kind of, um, he's been able to really put his name next to his ability to take a lot of punishment. And Jeff Neal was more than game to deliver it in this fight. Aljamain Sterling took on Cody Stamen at 135 pounds. In the first round, Sterling, uh, he went for a kick that was blocked, uh, but that allowed him just to land with his right hand. They did a big scramble with uh, Stamen getting to the back and then got Aljamain down to the mat. Sterling, very active off his back, tried to lock in a triangle, but then lost it. And in the process here, Stamen somehow cut himself over his right eye. And I didn't catch exactly what landed, uh, but this was a pretty significant cut. And Stamen got the slam takedown at the end. Into the second we go, Stamen slipped off of a kick and Sterling capitalized, getting on top. Stamen was able to get to his feet, drove for a takedown, and Sterling gets to his back. He flattens out Stamen and he tried a full Nelson. Like a pro wrestling full Nelson. Like this dude was Hercules. And he starts cranking on the left leg, pulling it back. I want you to imagine like a stunt puller if we're keeping with the pro wrestling vernacular. But he's going to the side with this knee bar. And his Stamen's knee is contorted in such a way he just screams and taps out at 342 with this knee bar. And... The announcers pointed out this was the first time that a knee bar from the back mount was uh, successfully executed in a UFC fight. So remember that, a knee bar from back. And Eljamain has now won two straight, uh, along with uh, this follow-up uh, over that win over Brett Johns. He's now won four of five with the uh, the blemish in that run being that knockout loss, courtesy of Marlon Marias. So Eljamain Sterling... Someone who's always sitting around that that upper mix at 135 pounds. And, you know, with Cody Garbrandt recently defeated for the second time by TJ Dillashaw, 
Bantamweight is not exactly deep with championship contenders. I would say Aljamain Sterling, uh, that knockout loss to Marlon Marais really set him back because I, I think he would be right in contention for a title fight. I think that Marlon Marais is someone that um, probably is going to be that that challenger that they are eyeing just for his style. It's a fresh fight uh, for TJ Dillashaw. Uh, but yeah, bantamweight is kind of open when you have someone like Cody Garbrandt who's kind of entered that awkward purgatory area uh, a la Stephen Thompson or Joseph Benavidez that held that crown for years at 125 pounds. And then the televised prelims were headlined by Tatiana Suarez taking on former strawweight champion Carla Esparza. Tatiana Suarez, uh, she won the Ultimate Fighter in 2016, and she has battled thyroid cancer, and that was something that um, really kind of curtailed her her progression, uh, but then went on the Ultimate Fighter 2016, won, and she's unbeaten thus far in the UFC, uh, three fights thus far in the octagon, so this was a significant test for her, a step up with Carla Esparza, who... With the striking elements that she's added to her game, I think a more complete fighter than the one we saw on The Ultimate Fighter and the one that became the inaugural women's strawweight champion. However, in this fight, uh, this was, uh, you know, the Daniel Cormier line. There are levels to this. Tatiana Suarez is making a very strong argument that she is at a different level than a lot of these strawweights. She got control of Carla Sparza and just bullied her to the ground into half guard, and she is annihilating her with hammer fists. Uh, midway through the round, the stats came up 20 to 0 in significant strikes uh, for Suarez. She slammed Asparza down with her power, and when she landed on Asparza's face, Asparza came up. She had, she had lumps all over her face. She had three that we could detect from these strikes. This is a woman in Tatiana Suarez who has size, she has incredible wrestling, and she has power. This is a deadly combination for a woman that can make 115 pounds and did so without any pound allowance in this one. She came in at 115 on the dot. Second round, more of the same. Suarez got a single leg takedown, and Asparza escapes the mount. Asparza, to her credit, like she was outmatched in this fight, but had a lot of heart. She was never mentally defeated in this fight and was trying her best to work out of some awful positions and had minimal success, but did have some. Uh, Suarez just took her right back down. It was very deflating if you were Carla Asparza. Uh, Suarez... Um, by this point in the second, had six of nine takedowns that were successful. I thought a pair of 10-8 rounds uh, to start this. And then in the third, Suarez gets her down after Esparza attempted to defend. Back to side control. She's landing big shots on top. And with 27 seconds left to go in the fight, she's able to get the stoppage victory. So her fourth win in the UFC, 81-0 in significant strikes. Eight takedowns for Suarez, 11 minutes and 46 seconds of top position time. Uh, there were comparisons in this fight by the announcers to Habib Nurmagomedov. Um, you know, diff- different fighters, but in terms of performance, very similar. Like, this was a wipeout of a quality strawweight in Carla Esparza. And Tatiana Suarez used her post-fight time with Joe Rogan for all it was worth. And she wants Rose Nama Yunus next. She said, I just beat the woman that was the strawweight champion that beat Rose Nama Yunus in the finals of Ultimate Fighter to win that title. And man, 
made a pretty compelling argument uh, to to be the next in line. Uh, Rogan and Cormier were making a big push that they want to see her fight uh, Joanna Andrzejczyk at 115 pounds. And you have to wonder that if Dana White is talking about Valentina Shevchenko fighting someone at 125 pounds for a title, Joanna Andrzejczyk would make sense to be for this to be the time that she finally moves up in weight. After the two losses to Rose Namajunas, she's in that same position we just talked about as a Cody Garbrandt at her weight class that maybe moving up is the time for Joanna Yandrzejczyk. Uh, Tatiana Suarez, this was a card that had, to me, a lot of rising stars that are, you know, it was a combination of of future title contenders. There were a few on here. There were a couple, you know, prospects that you may want to put some money on now if, if you're looking at them as stock that maybe they will pan out. I'm looking at someone like a Jeff Neal, who I'm not going to call a future champion at this stage of the game. Uh, but you had varying degrees of this on this fight and you had some pretty, lopsided odds on this show as well. Like we'll get into some of the the more drastic ones. Like Suarez was a minus 500 favorite in this fight. And that's not really a slight against Carla Esparza as much as an endorsement of Tatiana Suarez. But this was not a card that was built up of a lot of even matchmaking. Uh, You know, you had your main event, um, you know, even Jessica Andrade and Karolina Kovacavich, the line was pretty long on that one, considering Kovacavich is someone that has fought for the title and was a fairly big underdog. But the the inverse effect of that is that sometimes you get some really exciting performances when, you know, things are not as evenly matched as, you know, some fights are, where it's pick 'em fights and it leads to, you know, some conservative game planning because you have that concern with an opponent that sometimes you want to see some guys go out there and just style on people. And it can be really entertaining to, to watch some guys just rack up some wins, women included. And you got that on this card. It was a varying degree of matchmaking, but, uh, the magical formula really played itself out well. There was a great flow to this card. On to the pay per view we go. Nico Price against Abdul Razak Al Hassan at 170 pounds. This one on paper just screamed three round decision. And boy, were we wrong. Nico Price countered a leg kick with a right hand, and Alhassan just started throwing enormous strikes. He is landing at a pretty, pretty consistent rate. Drop Nico Price against the fence. Quick finish. It was a left hook that was the difference maker. Nico Price was out after this left hook, and then there was another one for good measure. And John Anik, a man after my heart, screams, Nico paid the price tonight. He did indeed. Second loss of his pro career for Nico Price. Abdul Razak Al-Hassan has now won three in a row. This after consecutive stoppages over Saba Homasi uh, and has won four out of five in his UFC tenure. Uh, has only gotten out of the first round, though, once in his 11 fights. And five of those fights in his career have ended under a minute. And you can add this one to the list as well. 43 seconds it took Razak Al-Hassan, uh, Abdul Razak Al-Hassan to win uh, this by knockout uh, in the first round. And, uh, another big performance by someone that at the end of the night, you were just looking up and down and uh, just wondering, man, this was one where you could have been just throwing out those bonus checks and, you know, they're limited. Jimmy Rivera and John Dodson. You know, this crowd had been spoiled up until this point with some of the performances. Uh, this was more of a technical fight and more so on the side of Jimmy Rivera, who I thought fought a very smart fight. I was never bored by this fight, but the Dallas crowd gave these two a, a real hard time. And you know what? Jimmy Rivera 
He won every round of this fight, and he was never bothered by this crowd. Uh, first round, uh, Dodson caught the leg and sent him to the fence. Uh, but then Rivera, you know, he just had his stance locked, and it was his speed that I think was really surprising. Everyone looks at John Dodson as the natural, quicker fighter in whatever scenario he is uh, in at flyweight and more so at bantamweight. But in this one, Rivera was able to match that speed and he was the one uh, with the more significant volume. Dodson way more selective with his strikes and it was Rivera, you know, um, significantly ahead in the strikes department in the first round, edged him out in the second. And then in the third, uh, it was just more of his power and he was able to land on Dodson. Dodson did use his left hand, but it was... It was very inconsistent. He was not putting big combinations together, almost waiting for Rivera to make mistakes. And with a guy like Jimmy Rivera, that's a really, really small window uh, of him slipping up and breaking his his stance. And that wasn't the case in this fight. Uh, very good, well-fought win uh, for Jimmy Rivera, who took this on unanimous decisions, 30-27, 30-27, 29-28. I don't know where Dodson wins that, that round. I mean, maybe you could argue... Um, the third, um, I don't know. I saw these as pretty clear rounds for Jimmy Rivera, all three rounds. Then we went to another prospect, and this is kind of to my point about uh, we had uh, Zabit Magomed Sharapov, who was to fight Yair Rodriguez on this card. He had to pull out due to an injury, and taking this fight on very short notice was Brandon Davis. And Magomed Sharapov came in a minus 1,400 favorite. And this is what I'm talking about, where you had such a the odds were so one-sided for this fight, and yet Brandon Davis, he came into this fight, and this guy was not going to be a pushover. A competitive opening round. Uh, Zabit won the first round, uh, but Davis made him work for it. He was throwing lots of kicks, putting pressure on Zabit, and it was a big slam from Zabit at the end of the round that kind of uh, ex- uh, kind of guaranteed the round for Zabit uh, after landing a left hook off of the fence. Into the second, uh, this was when Zabit, I think, had more of his uh, his confidence with him and it kind of figured out Davis. Uh, he's controlling him by the back, drives him to the mat, and now we're in Zabit's world. He dropped him onto his shoulder, lands some right hands from behind, and then another takedown. He takes hold of the wrists of Davis, and then he goes for a banana split from the back, and he's pulling on the knee, and we get our second knee bar in UFC history from back position. So here are the announcers just losing their minds that this has never happened in UFC history. And tonight we got two knee bars from back. 346 of the second round, Zabit Magomed Sharapov improves to 4-0 in the UFC, 15, uh, 16-1, I should say, uh, on his pro record. And a great win. He's now won 12 straight, was expected to win this fight, did win this fight. And man, these two submissions, these two knee bars, neither one getting a bonus. Crazy. So Zabid Magomed Sharapov looking very good in this fight. And maybe they'll run back and try the Yair Rodriguez fight again. Because that was a fight a lot of people were looking for forward to. It was the fight that kind of led to all the contentious issues between Rodriguez and the UFC. Where it was thought Rodriguez was done with the UFC. Ended up coming back. They made this fight. And then the injury prevented him uh, from taking part uh, in Dallas. Jessica Andrade, Karolina Kovalkiewicz was second from the top. Andrade has had a really solid run since coming down to strawweight. Did get the championship opportunity uh, 
against Joanna Yandrechek. That was in May of last year, and that being the lone blemish, so having to work her way her way back to a championship fight. Uh, this one, uh, Andraj just stunned her right away, swarmed her against the fence. She's landing with lefts and rights, but Kovokevich comes back, and she's landing her own strikes, connected with a knee to the body, and then Andraj, uh, she's coming back and throwing power. They were just letting them rip here in the early part of this fight, and at the end, Andraj rocks Kovokevich with a right hook, and she is out. Andraj knows it. This was another violent knockout. Uh, this was enough that Jessica Andraj did get a performance bonus for this one, stopping Karolina Kovalkiewicz by knockout at 158 of the first round. So this women's strawweight division, what a spotlight they received on Saturday night between Jessica Andraj and Tatiana Suarez. You know, if if I'm looking for a challenger for uh, Rose Namajunas between these two, I think you might lean towards... Uh, Tatiana Suarez, just for the simple fact that Jessica Andraj did have that opportunity uh, not too long ago against Joanna Andrzejczyk, but with a new champion, really you can't go wrong. If they match these two, I think that's a really fun fight coming out of this particular one. And what is Andrzejczyk's future at 115 pounds? Also a question in light of all this flyweight news. So uh, good problem to have. Uh, these two strawweights looked excellent on Saturday night and a quick one for Jessica Andraj. Uh, for Kovokevich, she uh, loses uh, for the first time uh after a two-fight win streak. So first time she's been knocked out in her career as well uh, and came into this as a pretty big underdog, a plus 350. And main event time, Tyron Woodley versus Darren Till. Uh, Darren Till coming off that win over Stephen Thompson that was very heavily debated. That was a fight that, you know, you go back and watch it and it was, you know, Darren Till controlling the center, but that to me is a classic example of a fight that, Octagon control really doesn't mean a whole lot if the guy working the perimeter is able to be effective and land the better strikes. And that's a fight you could very much argue that Stephen Thompson circled around and won that fight in that position. But nonetheless, Darren Till had his arm raised that night and despite missing weight in that fight, was granted this championship fight over Colby Covington, who was not ready to go. And therefore, they needed a championship fight on this card and they... They were able to make it happen with Tyron Woodley. First round, Woodley lands a knee from the tie clinch, and then he goes for underhooks. And Dan Mergliotta was very quick to separate them off the fence, like almost immediately with Woodley applying these underhooks. He returned to the double underhooks and was reversed by Till. They got separated. Not a whole lot happened in this first round, but it was certainly a Woodley round uh, with what he did. Uh, Till, Till did virtually nothing other than the reversal on the fence. In the second, Woodley was able to counter with a right hand that drops Darren Till. And Woodley gets on top of him. He is landing elbows, continues with these elbows, cuts Till open on the forehead. And Till is attempting to establish his guard. Woodley ends up moving to half guard. And Woodley can't mount him. He's very selective with his elbows. He was up. Uh, by a, a huge margin in significant strikes here as he was dominating this round. Woodley then uses his left hand to control the wrist of Darren Till and then was able to land with the right elbow. And then Woodley, here you you see him landing these elbows and almost placing Till into this defensive posture uh, to avoid the strikes. And he's 
just narrowing in on a Dars choke that he ends up locking in, and it's as though Till realizes too late that he's got him, and Darren Till taps out. It was definitive. 419 of the second round, Tyron Woodley getting his first submission inside of the UFC and first submission win period since he defeated Rudy Bears on a Strikeforce Challengers card in November of 2009. He was presented with his black belt afterwards by his team and Tyron Woodley successfully defending his welterweight title. Uh, first fight since July of last year. That was the fight where he defeated Damian Maya after messing up his shoulder in the first round that ended up requiring surgery. Uh, so Tyron Woodley, uh, he looked outstanding. Beating a top-level opponent in Darren Till. Wouldn't call out any opponents for the future. Didn't really give... A, you know, Joe Rogan was really fishing for an answer of who do you see as a challenge at welterweight? Are you eyeing moving up to middleweight? And Woodley was not going to take the bait. He said, I've given out uh, opponents in the past that have not been received well by the public. So I'm going to let them figure that out. And... You know, the obvious one is Colby Covington. Uh, it was stated that as soon as these two uh, fought on Saturday, that Colby Covington would officially be stripped of the interim championship. Another example of, hey, we need something for this Chicago card in June. Throw an interim title onto it. And by midsummer, we're talking about stripping a guy of it. Uh, just, you know, there's a reason so many of these titles mean so little. It's because they're treated as so little by the UFC at times. And it's in spite of some of these performances uh, that these titles hopefully have a perceived value that they're designed to have. Uh, but that's the fight. I mean, at, at welterweight, you have two options. You have Colby Covington and you have Kamaru Usman. Those are the two options available. And to me, it's just going to be a sense of who's ready first and when is Tyron Woodley interested in fighting again? He did the UFC a big favor by doing this fight. He stated it publicly. He wished he had a bit more time to prepare for this fight. He did them a solid, and I don't think he's going to want to turn around instantly uh, for a fight. If you're looking at commercial appeal, you lean Colby Covington, and that's why I assume that will be the next fight to happen at welterweight for the title. Uh, Kamaru Usman, certainly deserving of it. You want to talk about a guy that was company first uh, this week. This guy flies to Dallas. He is instructed to make weight because in case Darren Till falls out, they want to have someone on standby. So this guy, not only is he preparing for potentially two opponents, but because he could have been inserted if there was some problem with Woodley, he is also, he's got to make weight. And then Tyron Woodley makes it clear on Ariel Hawani's show about a week out that there is no way I'm fighting anyone but Darren Till. So don't even bother. Kamaru Usman. Usman comes to Texas. He is on weight and there was nothing for him. Uh, you know, he stated that, you know, the what he's being paid for making weight was uh, didn't sound like it was all that appealing to Kamaru Usman. And now he's not even guaranteed anything after after this. So, I mean, he I, I think he made the right call because you never know what can happen in one of these circumstances. It could have been a case. Darren Till misses weight. Tyron Woodley refuses to fight anyone. And they present Tyron Woodley with an offer, an amount of money that he cannot say no to. Kamaru Usman finds himself in that title fight. He could walk away welterweight champion. And his life is changed. So I think if you're a fighter and you are after those elusive pay-per-view points and a championship, you've got to take risks like that. And sometimes it's 
Uh, 90%, it's not going to yield any kind of fruit, but you got to take that chance uh, of that 10% chance that you could land a title fight at the last minute. So looks like he comes out of this. You would think if it's based on merit that they throw that guy a bone, but to me, I think Colby Covington, that is his fight to lose at this point in terms of the next big welterweight title fight, and probably you wouldn't think that would happen until at least 2019. So there you go. That was UFC 228, a really great show. Uh, I think that if, if you missed this one, uh, this was a card that easily you could have slept on and said, hey, I'm, I'm going to save my 60 bucks. Conor McGregor's fighting next month. But if you plop down your money, I think you would have been pretty entertained with Saturday's offering. Even if you only seek out the undercard, there was some great uh, performances. And I really liked the matchmaking on this card. I thought it put a lot of a lot of people into great positions coming out of this. Jessica Andrade, Tatiana Suarez, uh, Jeff Neal, the people are certainly aware of after this this card. And then some some uh, veterans turning back the clock in Jim Miller and Diego Sanchez. So uh, really fun card. They will be back next week with a afternoon card. They are going to Moscow, Russia for the first time. That one's going to be headlined by Mark Hunt against Alexei Olenek. Plus, we're going to have uh, Jan Blahovich taking on Nikita Krylov, Andrei Arlovsky taking on Shamil Abdurahimov, and the main card rounds out with Alexei Kushenko taking on Tiago Alves. So that is an afternoon card on Fight Pass, and then they return to pay-per-view next month. It's UFC 229. Uh, uh, who's who's fighting on that card? Uh, I believe that's the uh, the Oven St. Peru Dominic Reyes card. And we've got a championship fight on top of that too. Will this be the most purchased UFC pay-per-view of all time? If you're asking me a month out, and I hate predicting how a pay-per-view is going to do a month out, I lean yes. I think that this is going to be an enormous, enormous card. The promotion has not really hit, but we are four weeks out from this fight. I think by the, you know, Connor's return, this is his first UFC fight since 2016. There is going to be a palpable buzz for Connor McGregor's return. And I think it's going to be interesting what this pay per view does as well. I think 217 surprised, or 227 surprised a lot of people uh, with Garbrandt and Dillashaw's rematch. Uh, the fact it sold out the Staples Center told me that that fight connected with people. Maybe the fact that so many saw the first fight on the Madison Square Garden show. Um, I'm curious if that kind of trickles over to this show. And if, you know, it's Conor McGregor season. That's what we can label these couple of months. And does that tide lift all boats that the UFC interest is up with Conor McGregor's return? If you look at the recent uh, fight night numbers, television numbers are not doing great. At the moment, uh, but that pay per view last month certainly was indicative of something connecting. I don't know if Connor has a lot to do with that, but I think that next month with Connor's return, uh, this has every opportunity to be the biggest UFC event of all time because you have an opponent in Habib Nurmagomedov who this is hardly a guy that is just uh, just banking off of Connor McGregor's star. He is bringing an audience to this show too. It is not the size of Connor's. But Khabib Nurmagomedov has an audience too. And I think that that has all the makings of topping the the second Nate Diaz fight that Conor McGregor did two years ago. So it's going to be a very interesting number and probably a big spotlight on the UFC. A sorely needed spotlight over on a time when I think overall UFC interest has been down this year. And some of that is Ronda Rousey is gone. 
Uh, Conor McGregor has not been around for a long time. He's coming back. You've got, you know, a potential lingering fight with Brock Lesnar that I think that spotlight is going to return, um, even if temporarily over the next couple of weeks as the bu- the buildup for Conor McGregor, Habib Nurmagomedov, uh, really takes center stage for the UFC and they can devote all of their promotional resources to hyping up that card for October the 6th at the T-Mobile Arena. Uh, ticket sales uh, have been through the roof for the company. You know, a tremendous uh, first day ticket sale for, for that show at the T-Mobile Arena. So uh, it's going to be a big one next month. Uh, we will be back here. Uh, hopefully, it's going to be myself, Phil, and Ziggy next month uh, coming off of that pay-per-view, which we are hoping to watch together. So it should be a lot of fun. I think that's going to be a very widely viewed fight. Uh, Really going out on a limb there, I know. So that's it. Thank you for listening. Uh, we will be back, myself and Waiting, on Monday night with Rewind to Raw, so you can tune into that. All of your news updates can be found at postwrestling.com. And thank you very much for listening to this UFC 228 post show.